This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Han, and I'm joined today by art critic Ben Davis to discuss his book, Art in the Afterculture, Capitalist Crisis and Cultural Strategy, which was recently published with Haymarket Books. Ben, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great, Louisa. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for for. Uh reaching out to me and wanting to talk about this book. Yeah, it's uh, really great to have you on the show. Um, And I, likewise, am excited to chat with you about this book, which, just to give the listeners a broad overview, sort of considers the role of art as a social good within an sort of increasingly dysfunctional capitalist system. Um, I I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I picked up the book, such a broad topic, Um, but I was really interested to see sort of the broad array of like phenomena you examine from sort of the impact of uh, like digital media on left organizing, for example, um, to even the rise of like astrology among like liberal circles. (laughs) So, So even for readers who aren't necessarily kind of au fait with the particulars of the art world, I think there are certainly plenty plenty of um, kind of points and perspectives in your book that can be applied across um, cultural forms and will provide a framework with which to think through how artistic production flex or like pushes back against and is ultimately consumed um, in capitalism's current forms. Um, and I also just want to mention, and I think we'll cover this throughout kind of the value of this kind of work and ensuring that we don't kind of lose sight of the sort of social importance of, of art and culture as this, like the crises of neoliberalism basically mutate. Um, and as the need for like urgent conversations about leftist strategy intensifies. Uh, so uh, before we kind of get into the weeds of, of capitalist crisis, as it were, and kind of look at the finer points um, of your essays, would you mind just giving our audience a quick introduction to your background um, in art criticism and your broad interests sort of in the area? Yeah, thank you, Louisa. You, I'm impressed at how you 
brought together some of the themes of the book into one pitch there. It's uh, it is a collection of essays, you know, I, I just level with people. It's hard to sum up. Uh, but uh, it's a collection of essays about the art, how art changed in the last five years. That's how I've been pitching it. Um, myself, I'm an art critic. Uh, I have been an, an art critic working for different kinds of magazines since 2004 here in New York City. And for about the same amount of time, I've been involved um, in the microclimate of organized socialist politics here and uh, have been really interested in my work in, in how art and politics come together. Uh, sometimes I get uh, described as a political art critic. I don't really like that description because I think it's reductive and I think that we, for various reasons, uh, theoretical and practical, in terms of talking to other people, we should hold space for the idea that political people can like art outside of their political framework and, and create space for people with different aesthetic backgrounds to talk, to have the same politics. Um, that's uh, an issue I, I think is really important. That this book talks about some is the tendency to overcode uh, aesthetic forms with politics to kind of make aesthetics or art into a proxy politics and pathologies that produces. Um, in 2013, I published uh, another book of essays called 9.5 Theses on Art and Class, which came out of the, some of the debates in New York around that time about, about um, organizing in the art sphere and uh, the changes I was seeing in, in, in arts then. And it's taken me about 10 years in order to create a follow-up. It's been a really intense 10 years. And this book that we're talking about now, Art in the Afterculture, started out as just a collection of uh, pre-existing essays of things I'd written about um, the larger pieces that are about more than just an individual review, the things that kind of try and bring together themes in art are issues in in cultural criticism that I th was trying to intervene in but then during the pandemic uh, I ended up revisiting them and it's actually more or less a book of of new essays uh, based on lectures and and texts that I've written but more or less new new things that kind of sum up eight different themes um, in art organizing. It does try, I guess, uh, last thing I'll say about my interest in the book is that, you know, it has this, um, subtitle, uh, kind of crunchy subtitle capitalist crisis and cultural strategy. And I specifically put that there because I didn't want people to be fooled. Like it's half about art. I can think about the book as existing somewhere between, the professional world of arts and people who are engaged with museums and galleries and so forth, and people who are involved in the left and thinking about those cultural debates. And in some ways, it's me wrestling, trying to figure out how these parts fit together. But the book is, you know, about, it stands on both legs. And depending on where you are in the book, um, it'll be more about broader cultural debates that kind of transcend the narrowest definition of art and a little bit more about the you know museums and galleries, the very specific set of problems that have emerged 
in that sphere. And I think there's actually been a time period when some of those things have bled together in really interesting ways. And the institutional boundaries are falling apart because society is falling apart. And the book tries to map and look at that in various different arenas. Yeah, great. Thanks for that overview. And I see what you mean about the kind of the different audiences maybe that would kind of read it. It strikes me as quite a like accessible book in terms of like sort of um, the, like the political books that are kind of coming out around this subject. And I think Haymarket actually has a lot of sort of books um, with titles that are sort of very accessible in that sense. So um, I try, I mean, I think that there's a political value to that, right? You know, and I try and, uh, I mean, I sort of my niche, I guess, if you want to call it that, is that I really try and hold on to um, the idea of, of art criticism, art writing as a space of ideas and a place where you can talk about um, pretty complex, heady stuff. Um, and at the same time, uh, try and avoid some of the pitfalls of, of high theory and try. And it's, it's also just by virtue of my position. I, I write for, I don't write, I'm not an academic. I don't write for um, theory journals. Um, I write for either uh, magazines that come out of the left, um, like Jacobin or Salvage, or I write for popular art magazines. And so I really think that I, I just put a, a, I just put an emphasis on, on trying to speak plainly, but to do that without a kind of a, a kind of a, there's a, there's an anti-intellectualism in some of the recent conversation that it's like, that it's like uh, throwing out the baby with the bathwater in terms of its approach to theory. Yeah, great. I had actually come across one of your pieces in Salvage because I recognized it when I was reading your book and I thought, well, what's that? And anyway, that's, I'm yeah, di- that's digressing. That's uh, the Anarchist in the Network, the chapter on online organizing and uh, probably the most recent text chronologically in, in, in the book and probably the one that's closest to its original, although it's it has an entirely new. I wasn't really happy with the ending of that um, essay in Salvage, and this I, I hopefully um, is a little bit more of a satisfying conclusion to some of the questions about you know what it means to to ha- for a left project, a socialist project, to uh, engage with you know the, the, uh, the shit show of online. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure we'll get into that um, in a bit. So let's kind of start um, on the book now, um, which uh, you kind of begin it with a humorously, I suppose, fictional vision of, of, of the future, which is kind of mediated through this kind of imagined report, maybe about the condition of the art world a decade or so from now, which presumably kind of... I don't know, presumably represents kind of the apogee of the, the after culture that you're indexing, maybe. Um, so <laughs> just a spoiler alert for the audience, it's not it's not something that we, we necessarily, <laughs> we, we all ideally avoid it. Um, so my first question really is about um, kind of what like current, current phenomena um, inspired or motivated this vision. In the introduction, you mentioned um, your sense that in you, quote-unquote, structure feeling is emerging, um, which is a term some listeners may recognise if they're familiar with the work of, of Raymond Williams. 
Um, so I'm wondering if you could just explain what you mean by this term and the kinds of the kinds of signs um, or symptoms that you sort of encountered um, that alerted you to this shift and ultimately ultimately kind of motivated you to write the book. Well, I'd say a new structure of feeling has fully emerged um, right. that we're probably just about at the point where that it becomes something else and, and uh, we're dealing with with a whole new thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, this book, uh, if I, you have to tie together all the different themes in it, it it really is about, uh, how, how different aesthetic phenomena started to feel different in the last 10 years. And in advance of sort of theorizing people sort of figuring out what that meant. I mean, I think there was a time of really concussive change. Um, and, uh, it, it, things changed very rapidly without people necessarily and on a lot of different fronts so you know the book talks about eight different um ways these things changed um i don't think i i i think that there is uh not necessarily one single factor you know i kind of try and pull apart the slices what made things feel different but I do really remember, vividly remember around about 2014, uh, the protest wave of 2014, uh, the Black Lives Matter protest uh, wave. I talk about this a little bit in the introduction. It is the first time I really uh, used th- that concept for myself in my own head, this idea that there was a new structure of feeling. It was really just watching the meme culture emerging from the protests and seeing, you know, it was undeniably meaningful culture. It was undeniably leading the cultural conversation uh, and uh, was organizing people in new ways in a totally, you know, outside of the official institutions of art and emerging from activist culture, but clearly setting the bar for how visual culture would be received. And, and that is when I started thinking about how different the, the, the moment felt um, but but there's lots of other stuff in the mix. Uh, so, and that example brings together sort of one thread of the book, which is technological tra- change, with a, another thread of the book, which is new forms of activism and just the social crisis of the last ten years, episodic series of protest events, um, and uh, then just the background of intensifying. Uh, intensifying climate of social fracture inequality that has persisted through the whole era and the stagnation and fallout from the 2008 crisis uh, leading into the the current pandemic era troubles. So uh, all of those things pressure, put different kinds of pressure on arts and culture uh, that I think about feels like a sense of flattening to me, like in terms of the cultural conversation. I don't think, again, that's one thing. There's like lots of different stuff going on in that sense, in that sense. But um, there's definitely a sense of an acceleration of conversation that because of technology and because of the urgency of events, like the way people consume uh, culture has just sped up the demands to respond immediately in arts and culture, that, that bar is raised. The man's in criticism to like peg your review or your 
your theory, two current events are higher because of the ambient urgency of the world is 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 more evident to people. Um, produces a kind of crisis of relevance for a lot of art producers and art institutions because because what's going on outside the museum, as people often say, is more interesting than what's going on inside. The museum feels more relevant in times of uh, when there's action going on in the streets. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, in a time of inequality, uh, pressing from another direction, in a time of inequality, uh, you know, in a time uh, art is just it very visibly in public, such a cat's paw of, of money, you know, has is flattened underneath uh, its public image is, is really flattened under the, its image as a financial instrument, its image as a, as a display of wealth and status. And, uh, because we live in an age of such huge extremes when, uh, wealth is captured so much of the conversation, uh, that's a very visible aspect of the conversation around arts. So again, I think the term structure of feeling to me is useful because it, it's, it's supposed to capture this concept of slightly undefined um, sensibility rather than a fixed set of, of, um, of coordinates. And, uh, and you can really pin down, when some of that started to emerge together, which I think is around, I think around 2014. Um, and I think turning over just about now. Yeah, great. Um, so I'm just going to kind of dig down into your first essay, sort of moving on from that a little bit, um, which sort of focuses on connoisseurship, I suppose, first of all, um, as I think it will kind of help to, to uncover some of the like currently like hegemonic notions um, about what art is really um, and sort of who can participate in cultural consumption and production and some of the kind of um, phenomena that you were just kind of talking about. So what kind of struck me um, about the chapter really um, is the ways that uh, sort of your conspectuses of how the role of the artist has been shaped by capitalism over the past couple of centuries always contains this kind of doubleness or, or paradoxical element. So for example, you talk about the role of the artist as um, like an alternative to like alienated labor while at the same time being subject to, to cultures of taste that reinstate class and, and colonial forms of subjugation, I suppose. So I'm wondering just if you could um, expand maybe on this kind of unsettled nature of art um, and of, you know, wage labor and taste in the current moment and the implications for sort of how we read and interpret works, you know, through an anti-capitalist lens, I suppose. Yeah, well, a lot of the book is trying to uh, intervene in different kinds of debates. And, and, and again, the way I see it, a lot of political energy gets deflected into cultural conversations that um, refract a political conversation, but deflect it onto... Uh, terrain that uh, uh, that that um, you know that, that that creates like a false problem because the problem that a political problem that's coded into a cultural uh, through a cultural lens and therefore you know can't be resolved politically because you're having you're you're fighting on the wrong terrain essentially uh, this 
I'm just saying that to generally frame the chapter because it's funny to go from a conversation of me talking about, you know, that Black Lives Matter, uh, crisis of politics, the disintegration of civil society today, and then we're talking about connoisseurship, yeah. um, which, which the way I start at the chapters, like this is the most fussy uh, kind of conversation. Um, it, it's a term that very few people defend now. Very few people in the arts defend the term uh, connoisseurship. Um, that's one of the things that interests me where I start out in the chapter is that uh, is that there has been this major turn away from ideas of connoisseurship within art, uh, the, like ideas of the masterpiece, of special the importance of specialist knowledge, uh, the uh, idea of the autographic hand of the author, uh, the idea of that there's a right interpretation about things, the, the culture of taste. Um, the idea, you know, the old school idea that people are learning how to be the right kind of person by being in the presence of art. Like the official institutions of art are almost, you know, the 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 the, the museums and so on. Uh, in the academy, these are really out of fashion ideas. You know, in the name of uh, democratization of the cultural space. You know, bringing in new voices, decentering the the some of the colonial assumptions, the, the, the white supremacist assumptions of the museum, a lot of that's gone out the window, all those ideas. Um, and people focus on a much more, uh, uh, much more uh, demotic, uh, conversational form of cultural consumption. But the interesting thing to me is that at the same time that's happened in the museum, in popular culture, more broadly, there's this incredible renaissance of values of connoisseurship at all levels. I mean, if you look at something like sneaker culture, for instance, which has this huge audience, this huge, you know, uh, production not production of knowledge and taste um, and capital around forms of commodities that are just a couple decades old, really. It's um, and it just mirrors all the micro hierarchies, status marking, um, and so on of old school connoisseurship. Uh, I mean, it really is, there is this tremendous premium on collector culture, on unique originals, on the values of finding the, the, the unique story behind things, uh, behind, um, and that replicates in many, 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 different spheres. Um, so there's this interesting kind of unresolved thing. And basically I, I, in the chapter, I try and look at the history of where ideas of art connoisseurship come from to try and break out of what I think is essentially kind of a false binary, a false choice that cultural criticism gets offered, which is, can be summed up in the, the idea of uh, a debate between some form of aesthetic populism and some for, form of aesthetic um, elitism. And it just seems to me that looking at the actual way these conversations are, are um, unfurling just shows how inadequate that binary is and how false it is, how it traps you into these, into this, this polarization that is sort of just designed to never resolve itself. And, uh, 
and 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 uh, and yeah, put the put a political conversation in very unfavorable terms. Yeah, that's a, that's a great sort of summary of the the chapter. Um, I'm just kind of, kind of curious, really, um, whether because this sort of, sort of feeds into it. Whether you've had any thoughts, or whether you were sort of tempted ever to write about the kind of the issue of like NFTs and the kind of connoisseurship that kind of goes around that, the utopian promises that they're kind of going to transform the art market and kind of usher in this new democratized form of collecting, like. I'm just coming from having had to report uh, for my job on NFT NYC, the big um, NFT conference here. Uh, you're poking at my the biggest vulnerability about the book is my, my publisher refers to as the missing chapter on NFTs that would bring it all together. Um, because I think that that uh, is a little bit too new of a development, a little less than a little more than a year old for me to have a chapter in this book about it. Um, and uh, still evolving. But absolutely, I think that, that this is an incredible example of, of what I'm talking about, um, that, uh, that, and I just want to be careful here because I do think, uh, just to be very clear, the NFT scene, the digital art scene, um, is, very, is very consequential the, its emergence in the last um, year has transformed really the conversation about digital culture in a way that that is very significant. I mean, it's a very uh, consequential example of something happening in a hyper elite art sphere, like really serving as a, a demonstration effect as like selling this form of technology to much, much, much wider layers of people. And a lot of that is extremely dangerous is, 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 getting uh, masses of people into hyper-speculative forms of, of, of just hyper-speculative forms of trade where they're being promised a piece, you know, essentially people have seen in the last 10 years, the economy stagnate. And the one thing that seems to be growing by leaps and bounds is the luxury market and huge headlines about, about, uh, about art at auction, and then this new technology comes along, which seems to take digital culture, which is a very uh, accessible thing to people, and turn it into a similar kind of speculative market, and uh, with the promise that the average person can have a piece of what they've seen the rich people get in the last um, 10 years, and it's just such a despairing time of this moment of this moment in my opinion that so much hope and optimism is being channeled into these hyper speculative um into this hyper speculative technology but that's all a prelude to me saying in the context of my chapter about connoisseurship i even thought about trying to add a section to it it just did just didn't work to me that i think that um you know, art people have, as in people engaged in the in the museum and gallery world, have a tendency to look. Some art people have a tendency to look at the NFT world and with a lot of justified skepticism, but also with a little bit of unjustified confusion. Like how spending this money on worthless JPEGs 
And these are people who should be familiar with the history of conceptual art and immaterial art that makes it um, really obvious that you can, that these are just the, the trade around things. There's no accounting for it. And it is, uh, it is, it, it's, it should be perfectly legible with the conceptual tools we have what's going on. And it is not that different what's going on, even with some of the most low-brow versions of NFT culture, where it's literally this cultivation of our, not just cultivation, but production of arbitrary distinct uh, 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 signifiers of distinction, where, oh, the ape with the, the pipe is worth a little bit more than the ape with the wig. And um, that is an extremely shallow form of pseudo-connoisseurship, but it is doing the work that, that a lot of the culture of taste does, which is produce hierarchies of distinction that make people feel unique and be able to signify a sense of being a unique subject, a unique individual in a social context, life world of capitalism. It's very dehumanizing, alienates people, uh, makes people feel like interchangeable, um, interchangeable units of labor on the on the labor market. In that context, is a constant hunger for the reproduction of of signifiers of uniqueness that capitalism gets its fangs into and 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 will suck all the juice out of it that it, that it can. And that form of pseudo connoisseurship, in my opinion, is as shallow in the NFT scene as a lot of the pseudo connoisseurship in art that you see at the auction houses, you know, which have a very stereotyped and stock language that you look at any lot that they're selling, whether you particularly like the artist they're selling or not, you know, it'll be this kind of comedy sec, uh, 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 comedy sequence of, of adjectives. It's like rare and unique example of an 18th century, uh, aristocratic portrait or whatever. I mean, it's just the the way that there is a complete. Um, uh, I really recommend that people read an essay by Alice Gregory um, from a few years ago about writing catalog copy for Sotheby's auction house, where she just talks about how stock the language it is is the, the production of 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 critical discourse in, in auction catalogs is, and it is read that essay now, which was published in probably 2010 or, 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 um, 2011. And it's as stock, the uh, goofy and empty and shallow as some of the NFT stuff going on. I mean, these, these are part of the same larger pattern, uh, of the production of forms of taste and connoisseurship and the marketing of those things. Um, and it's, there's, there's just a lot of, um, fake kind of, uh, uh, posturing that, and, and, uh, marking of territory that keeps people from seeing that. Right. Yeah. I'll check out that essay for sure. It sounds, sounds interesting. Um, so I'm going to kind of swiftly move to the next chapter now to kind of push us along a bit. Um, so in this one, you kind of start addressing the history of, um, sort of, politicized art movements as well as the kind of widely accepted idea that you know um the artistic sphere represents a kind of 
I don't know, like a vehicle of progressive politics or, or I don't know, I guess liberal politics, uh, really. So I found the title of the chapter, which was um, called Elite Chapter and Radical Chic, to be quite timely here following um, the publication of Olufemi Tyro's book, Elite Capture, which has gained, you know, um, a good deal of, of traction on on the academic left, as far as I can see. And I think it's, it's a really sort of useful text for considering how um, elite social kind of groups utilize the parlance and the cultural norms of, of um, progressive movements for sort of maybe less radical ends, while at the same time, it sort of also acknowledges the need to kind of preserve and celebrate some of the emancipatory messages being being co-opted. So, um, so with this in mind, like, uh, could you expand on some of the, the key ways in which elite capture and radical chic, op- chic operate and what are their sort of key symptoms um, of neoliberalism that we should maybe be aware of if we're kind of wanting to analyse a cultural product as a, as a political tool in, in anti-capitalist struggle? Yeah, well, all of them read Taiwo's book, which uh, is another Haymarket title, uh, uh, to plug my publisher. It's, it's Pluto in the UK, actually. They've got two. Oh, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, just, just if anyone's uh, <laughs> wanting to buy it, fine, just fine with me. You know, however we can get the the book out there, um, the the more people who read it, the better. But the subtitle is how um, I think how the elite captured um, identity politics and everything else. And I guess art would be part of the everything else um, here. You know, I'm, I am using the term from from his book. So what I'm trying to do in this chapter, which is a chapter about the recent uh, protest movements around museums, uh, is try and find a way through, uh, again, another, I think, false choice that people are offered in these debates, which is either between the idea of seizing the institutions of art as our privileged form, you know, we are um, radical art producers, Therefore, our role is to radicalize art institutions, to seize those art institutions that um, is, is, is um, I think, the way this, in my anecdotal observations, seems to be the way people engaged in the arts always think about any problem. There's a social movement, and then people's reaction to it is always, what is the art version of that? And I think for as long as I've been writing or reading about art, critical art practice has been the political, has been the, the, the understood left-wing way of engaging. Uh, uh, like if you read Art Since 1900, a textbook that uh, uh, Hal Foster, Rosalind Krauss, Evelyn Bois, and Benjamin Bucco put out a decade ago that sort of canonized a lot of the ideas of the October School of Art Criticism in the uh, in the academy, I mean, it still has this narrative that goes from modernist avant-garde to critical art practice in the present as the privileged term. You know, it's essentially like progressive or radical art in the museum, in the art institutions. Um, and then uh, I think in the recent past, there's just a lot of disillusionment with that position. And uh, a real sense that that's been a form of capture that, uh, that, that, and this sense that, well, that's all nonsense. You know, the, the museum is inherently compromised is all worthless. 
um, we're just kind of trapping left-wing energy in these spaces, a sense that I definitely share. But I like to use this example. Some years ago, uh, Akwi and Wezer and uh, Isaac Julian did a staged reading at the Venice Biennale of Marx's Capital, which people made fun of a lot. I mean, I think it's a good example something people might call radical chic because what does this mean? You know, it's like this, this it's sort of marking the space as a Marxist, as a, as a space that is, that is hospitable to the ideas, but it's, it just seems to me very clearly not going to like reach a, a huge working class audience, you know, just by the nature of the form it's drawing. It's like this kind of endurance marathon um, theatrics of it. Um, so what does it mean? It's easy to make fun of, but on the same time, you know, it's better than a stage marathon of like Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. You know, you have to, you have to both like kind of be able to play both sides and appreciate that we have, that these spaces are hospitable to certain kind of ideas and realize that that's a trap and try to figure out a way out of that. So I think to sum up, uh, since the Trump election here in the United States, and I think since Brexit in the UK, there's this, um, conversation about demographic sorting, you know, that one of the things that's happened in the last, in the neoliberal period is that people have sorted themselves geographically into, into ideological bands so that, you know, people who have a certain kind of politics are much more likely to live around other people with that kind of politics now than they were before. And I think that you can view the fact that in the, since the 1970s, the official spaces of the arts have become much more openly politicized, you know, it's become much more uh, 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 expected even to like signal progressive values uh, at the, both the you know, museum level and the biennial level, kind of global, global international level as part of this process where left-wing energies were kind of steered away from the streets and into the cultural spaces um, and into spaces. And, um, I think we need to take what that means really seriously in the context of anti-capitalist struggle. What I think is interesting about that is on the one hand, I, I would view this entire process of, as really part of the turn of the left in general towards nonprofits uh, as their means of uh, in, in the neoliberal period, there's been this tremendous flourishing uh, something that Sarah Jaffe writes about in her book, work won't love you back um, that there's just been a tremendous flourish of, of, of nonprofit forms of activism. At the same time, there's been this bleed away of activism from the streets. Um, it's kind of professionalized activism and there's a, the kind of turn towards like kind of professionalized forms of activist art is part of that. And then growing out of the interest of my previous book, um, which is about the class position of the artist. I mean, I think um, if we as Marxist or socialists take seriously the idea that the organized working class is the ultimate lever of change, then it is an obstacle that we, to, that we should think about that uh, so much left energy has been channeled into cultural projects that are A, captured by apparatuses of 
product of like taste. So it's like inherently designed to people mark people off from cultural backgrounds that don't come out of, of a very certain formation, usually associated with the university. Um, and being in a more structural sense of class, like the artist is a very individualistic actor. You know, they, they, the, the, the idea of artistic activism is inherently focused on the expressive components of the individual actor or the small group of actors, um, which is just not the what we would expect the ultimate working class, the form of organizing at your workplace with others in order to exercise organized control over, um, over uh, a boss or to get a bigger piece of the pie. Uh, doesn't mean it's worthless or valueless. I just think that it's part of the class compromise of the neoliberal period is that a lot of, in a, in a, in a conspiracy that I would say is both conscious and unconscious, a lot of, um, of energy uh, on the liberal to radical side of the spectrum has been turned towards those forms, have been bottled up in those forms of engagement, um, precisely because that offers you want to put a positive way about it, a more uh, a tangible form of, of, um, of, of progress or a more tangible form of, of action at a time when working class life is kind of in disintegration. Um, but it also is, is been a process, part of the process of professionalizing the left um, and, uh, and, and isolating the left away from the place where it could do um, have the most effect. So that the larger project of that chapter, um, there's more to be said about, you know, the radical chic, um, piece of it, but I've already talked a lot about it now. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, so I think throughout the book you do kind of um, address that sort of phenomenon of of, of individualization on the left, I suppose, of like individual actor in the project through um, looking at the kind of technologies that might kind of compound it, I suppose. So like halfway through the book, you sort of look a little bit deeper into the role of, of social media and, and technology and kind of counter-hegemonic practice um, sort of noting that much of the kind of the libertarian or that anarchist I suppose activism that has kind of taken place online um over the past couple of decades has been carried out by by artists and, and creatives um sort of tying this into sort of broader phenomenon phenomena sort of surrounding the the limitations of of online politicking really and the sort of emergence of the I don't know I guess quite nebulous online left much of which compri- comprises like you know a downwardly mobile sort of young middle class really um 
I think, it's, you know, there's kind of a general consensus now that the sort of utopian potential of the internet as this kind of democratizing space for anyone to disseminate their work and ideas and sort of garner this kind of large audience. Um, I think that's essentially been sort of extinguished in the face of evidence to the, sort of the contrary, really. Um, but at the same time, like we're not getting rid of Twitter anytime soon, are we? So sort of with, with this in mind, I guess my next, next question um, is, could you kind of give us a sense of what you see as the counter the counterintuitive or dangerous kind of tendencies of of the digital for this kind of type of socialistic politics um and whether it kind of contains any positive potentialities that could be used in in the project yeah well the the terms have really flipped in the last i mean this is one of the big flips in the last five years is that um you know there there was still uh a lot of digital residual digital utopianism um uh until until you know 2014 2015 and then yeah now the default conversation runs entirely the other way so it's more in need of being recovering the utopian side or recovering the positive um but we should also just take the measure of you know our defeat you know and how and how these by becoming wedding politics to these forms uh, these these forms of communication this kind of expressive activism you know how how limited um, how limited uh, the horizons have have become. I mean, the digital question of of digital politics um, that I look at in the chapter "The Anarchist in the Network" for me grew out of the interest in the previous book in artists and class and some of the stuff I was just talking about 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 thinking through, if you think through the, the idea of the artist, that is the idea of somebody who um, is a solo, not, not just a creative producer, because you could be a creative producer who works for a wage. You know, if you're a designer or, you know, actually a lot of people have some form of creativity that goes into their wage labor. But that is not the idea of the artist that is, that, that people claim, they say, I am an artist. What you mean is, a uh, a a form of creative production, um, and I really think people should read Dave Beach on this. Um, he writes some of the best stuff about thinking through the history of of art and um, the artistic form in relationship to, to to labor and capital. But um, the form of the solo artist is is somebody who um, is their own boss. You know, both sells their art as a commodity, perhaps, um, like in an ideal world, I think people imagine themselves as, as making a living off their art. That's part of the dream, but also being, um, their own, the boss of their own creativity. The artwork is semi de-alienated, at least, at least mythologically de-alienated. It represents them in some kind of way that wage labor doesn't. That's the dream of being an artist. And in my opinion, therefore, the idea of the artist contains all these like aspirations about what it would be like to to not be alienated the way a lot of people are at work, but also contains some of the limits of the, uh, of of that, and that the form of art politics, the artistic forms that politics tends to take, tends to bear this kind of individualistic um, bias that takes it away from ideas of struggle at the workplace for instance 
which I think that as a socialist, you have to hold space for as a really important part of social struggle. Um, it may be difficult right now, but if it never happens, then we're in a lot of trouble. I mean, we have no lever. Um, like all, all of the problems that people try and solve with expressive means and like kind of uh, workshopping interpersonal solutions to things and, and creating, you know, creative hacks and workarounds, all of them could be better solved just if we could redistribute a lot of wealth to where it's needed. Um, so uh, it wouldn't solve everything, but it solves a lot of things that people are trying to make up for with like boutique forms of artistic or creative expression. In any case, a lot of the first book is about trying to think through the limits of how, how the, those kind of, cla- kind of class perspective and what it means to be an artist entered into the conversation about politics, the politics of art. One of the things that happened in the last 10 years is that is that digital creativity just really took over. I mean, this was a very uh, limited presence in my 2013 book. Um, it's in there, but it's not like the centerpiece of things. But like digital creativity is the main event right now. If you're a writer, writing on the internet is where you get the biggest audience. Uh, if you are a visual producer, that's probably where most people will first encounter your, your work. And as Eric said, it will be the real version that they see. The most fundamental version will be it's, it's, it's the version that circulates in mediated online spaces. Um, and there's been an entire huge um, economy that's grown up around social media by some extent, by some extents, the um, role of, the, of content producer is like, the fastest growing category of small businesses by some measure, which then has like, I think huge implications for the, the base of a lot of political discussion, because there's a left-wing version of this. There are left-wing ideological entrepreneurs trying to find um, political um, audience and support within this ecosystem. And that produces, and then I guess what I'm saying is, so then some of the, problems that I was looking at in relationship to the very specific questions of artistic production and politics have become really generalized, you know, have become really diffuse throughout the left, this term, these forms of like the way that the conversation tends to recode political conversations with the political um, debate tends to immediately recode political conversations into, into uh, micro debates between people's different brands and forms of politics, um, I think is, is something, it's what I try and do in this chapter is talk about how digital politics, um, encodes some of those, some of those problems. Um, I haven't gotten to the positive part. I don't know if you want me to. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I think, I think that, as usual, you're left with a kind of a false choice. You know, is it, uh, being online or offline is another one of those false choices. And, you know, we don't get to determine the situation of struggle. Um, so I just think that that there are actually, there, there, I mean, and it's clearly been true that the digital conversation, the opening up of the, the, the what was once considered a utopian left horizon for uh, for arts and culture, which was platforms 
where anyone can participate and dialogue. I mean, if you if you go back to John Berger's ways of seeing, which is something I do in my book, like when he talks about what he sees as like the ideal form of like a socialist media project, it sounds a lot like Instagram. <laughs> I mean, literally talks about bulletin board where anybody could pin up their their images and remix them and put them in a new conversation that is more about their life than, than about what the museum tells them to think. I mean, it does sound like, um, it does sound like social media, essentially people invested a lot of, of, of hope in those kind of like participatory cultural projects. Um, obviously it hasn't turned out so utopian, but it's had, you know, there've been progressive effects that come about it. I mean, there's, been a uh, uh, tremendous arrival of new, uh, you know, the, the, the media is a monopoly, has been a monopoly of, of white guys, um, that, of straight white men who have like a very limited social perspective. It's brought in, the, 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 the opening up of, of social media has brought in a lot of, a lot of new voices. Um, I think if you're a socialist, you have to look at the fact that Socialism has become a much more mainstream part of the conversation as as part of something that's appeared because there are these new tools in order to circulate to circulate ideas that have intersected intersected with new kinds of movement and amplified them. I think that you can look at all those things and be grateful for them and try and maneuver around them and still think and still see that it's come with really terror, a really high price so that like some very serious problems replicate at a much high, at a higher level now. Um, it's also mainstream, the same by the same token, it's also mainstreamed a lot of like right wing stuff that you have to engage. With now. Um, that's by its nature. Um, I think that one of the dangers of the technology media culture conversation, is it tends to act like, voices exist in a vacuum that just the tools to amplify voices itself is, is, is a, um, is, is the good that you're going for when the left wing stuff, because of its social position and the fact that our society is very conservative and unequal intersects with less organized support than the right wing stuff, (laughs) you know? So that gets inherently in a situation when you open up the floodgates Actually, society already tilts right. So, you know, you have a lot of the this new energy. A lot The right-wing stuff intersects with a more organized pro- project, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the sort and of, the, I, it's, really, it's really the kind of project of organization that I, I'm trying to think about yeah, yeah. in the chapter. Yeah, and of, and of course, kind of the algorithms that sort of essentially drive these sort of platforms forward are all sort of... Uh, um, favoring the kind of the right-wing content just because of by virtue of its sort of I don't know the way it captures attention and stuff so I don't know that kind of brings me on to kind of the next um topic that I wanted to look at um which you cover in your book which is on the the role of AI in 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 art making uh which I enjoyed when I was reading it because it was it came it was I was reading it at the same time as that um recent AI Dali platform thing came out where everyone was creating those <laughs> um, sort of 
just to just to let the audience if they've not encountered it it's the one that kind of attempted to kind of produce an image from sort of any prompt that you typed into the program um it sort of really flooded my whatsapp messages um but anyway so obviously ai throws up these these kind of these age-old questions about what art really means sort of the role of interactivity and sort of contemporary consumption of art um and whether you can really automate aesthetic pleasure to any sort of satisfactory level um so could you tell us just a little bit little bit about um what role you think ai kind of plays in this capitalist capture of the art world and its sort of potential maybe anti-liberatory functions i suppose yeah i mean there there are so many that it's going to be difficult to narrow it down but uh, but yeah i mean i i think essentially uh the Current conversation about artificial intelligence and art is going to raise extremely is raising extremely fundamental questions about what art is, what an artist is. I think that the 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 thing that I note about the uh, mainstream uh, corporate uh, and tech press um, coverage of AI art is that it's it's like if you're an art critic or an art or a, a person who's engaged with art. It's, it's, it's like their idea of aesthetics is taking place in a parallel universe where um, postmodernism never happened um, and where the theoretical critiques of formalism never happened. I mean, they, have, they actually do have uh, sort of something I admire about the conversation about AI and art is that, is that they are engaged with aesthetics. I mean, you have to have a working model of, an aesthetic, of aesthetic engagement in order to automate it, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's incredibly formalist. I mean, it, it, I talk about something called the want curve in, in the, um, in the chapter, which is this idea that aesthetic response I'm from cognitive aesthetics, that aesthetic response is essentially you take uh, sensory variables and, um, something, sh- something should be, um, fall in the middle of a curve about them. That is, they should, it should be a novel experience, but not too novel. It becomes alienating. That's like kind of one of the working definitions of aesthetic objects. So the way these, a lot of these um, artistic, artistic uh, applications work is they look at what else has been made. They synthesize it and produce a new thing that looks like it, but is different. And that is one definition of aesthetic engagement. I mean, and more, uh, more of, what matters than people would like to admit. I mean, more of the mainstream conversation about art is just based on the static generation of novelty, uh, of novelties. Then, 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 I mean, that's what people are going to find out real, real fast. That a lot of the, a lot of the intellectual armature and marketing apparatus of the arts is built on a really thin foundation without a pretty, without a deep idea without, and that this, this um, kind of technology is going to lay waste to a lot of ideas of, of human creativity and you're going to be left trying to make a, a deeper case for it. And um, I am a Marxist, I am a materialist. Um, and one of the things that follows for me, uh, I'm a historical materialist. One of the things that follows for me from that is that art objects are important and meaningful to us in relationship to their historical and context and material context of production. It's not just a bunch of sensory variables that hit you. And then, and, and really a lot of these, um, 
artificial intelligence things, like when you take away all the like technical jargon and terms, like the definition of the aesthetic response from the point of view of that's being proposed is really just, wow, that's cool. That's the, that's the idea. That's what you get. You know, it's like the equivalent of, of hotel art. You know, it's like that you, the amount of thought given to it is like, Oh, that's an interesting thing that makes my environment slightly more uh, novel. Um, but that, I don't think that's a definition of the deepest um, forms of aesthetic engagement. I don't think that's why things are preserved in museum in the first place, because they're preserved because of very specific histories. The visual prop, the external visual properties of things are, are often, you know, only activated by some knowledge of the historical context and material conditions of production. Um, and so, and the entire AI conversation about our bakes in this idea and emerges from this internet idea of culture that objects that, that, that artworks are just visual assets that are manipulable. Um, is that the beginning of an answer? I mean, in terms of the social implications of it, I think they're going to be really disorienting for art. I mean, I think in the very near future, um, you know, for sooner than people think, you know, like most, um, underscoring on in, in in TV shows and movies won't be done by have any kind of have very little human mediation It'll just be like a computer like figuring out the best um, forms of of aural um, accompaniment it's the economist just did a cover designed by artificial intelligence it's very it's 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 gonna um, the, it's gonna have a big effect on on design as industry and you really are left with the question of, of, of what really the art part of art is, you know, beyond, the, beyond those variables. Um, and I think it is extremely dangerous that it's, this is all being, this technology is, always, is all being had on the terrain of um, capital, of, of, of our current berserk capitalist economy, because the first application for all this stuff is going to be uh, to sell you stuff, right? Or to 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 simulate. To, to this is the 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 hardest part of we in our particular social order. It's tremendous overproduction of commodities, and there is a continuous crisis of advertising where where. Um, Capitalism tends to cannibalize all forms of authenticity and leave <laughs> and leave people, each generation successively more alienated from um, from the culture. And in that context, what artificial intelligence is going to be, first of all, used to do is to manipulate people's emotions in order to get them to buy things. And far before we have some kind of general intelligence, um, you're going to have... Um, applications that are just very good at manipulating people's emotions and producing the simulation of, of emotions, simulation of human context in the context of a very lonely, alienated society. And it's just not that hard. Uh, people fall in love with cartoon characters all the time. I mean, people do, people are hungry for emotional connection. Uh, corporations building emotional robots are going to work. Um, and 
the kind of hall of mirrors that unleashes into social life, the alienation that's going to bring at a, at a higher level is something I don't think people are prepared for because the only logical connection, the only logical outcome of it in, if you assume a reasonably um, intelligent, uh, uh, critical average level of, of criticism is that just the meaning of emotional expression exchanges. People become much more alienated from outward displays of emotional, of emotional um, connection when it's being like simulated at industrial strength at industrial at industrial levels. I mean, it's, it's going to, we're going to be a society where people are much more alienated from each other and distrustful. That's just the logical, that's just the, 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 the baseline of the things to expect from, from um, this kind of cultural technology in, in like the near future. Yeah. And it feels like we're already kind of seeing that in the kind of the incredibly samey sort of output you get on like Netflix, for example, that sort of, I don't know, sates the kind of alienation that people feel because it's just sort of this kind of paint by numbers narratives that feel com- comforting or something as well. So we're already, I guess, part of this kind of structured feeling that you talk about so. yeah absolutely and, and i mean i think that you know tiktok is the most watched uh, social uh, media platform in the world and it's also the one that's most generate it's most algorithmically determined by artificial intelligence that's innovation that's what makes it so effective is that in a very it has a super uh, powerful artificial intelligence apparatus that within uh really minutes of you being on the platform uh psychographic uh psychographic psycho um uh, psychologically profiles you and figures out like what kind of person it thinks you are. And it's very efficient at creating a feedback loop where you get more of what you want. And in the near future, that's not even going to be just humans producing that more of what you want. It'll be, it'll be, you know, the artificial intelligence itself just um, permeating, permeating um, um, a feed of kind of limitlessly engagement culture. And that's going to work a lot better I mean, people assume that it's not going to work. It's, it, it, it is, it already works. Our consciousness are already shaped on so many levels by artificial intelligence. It's already so baked into our human social relationships. In, in some ways, the machines have already taken over, and uh, and it's 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 going to produce, you know, major cultural disruptions. I guess the the to be slightly hopeful. It's where I see that chapter on artificial intelligence is for me where I see, you know, I see a really important um, role for like some of the theories about art to make an intervention. Because I think on, I think the questions of what a really meaningful cultural experience is, not just a engaging cultural experience, because the metrics for capitalism are all about uh, quantifying quality so it's all about just time on site, a numerical engagement, um, and that's what kind of baked into these into these algorithms is that kind of um, aesthetic preference. Uh, but I, I just think that there there's there's a role for you know arti- there's an entire rich conversation about what makes a meaningful um, artistic experience. That's like all born out of a critique of of form of the kind of formalism that's baked into um, some of these artificial intelligence applications that um, I I see as being like really vital and relevant for people to engage with, um, and and I mean I just I think already you see a kind of dropout culture 
of people radicalizing a kind of alienation towards technology, neo-Luddite culture. Um, and in the near future, that's going to get much more intense. That's going to be a big uh, political conversation, um, how to engage with it, you know, which side of that, uh, that, that rift to fall on. Um, and I, I just see like a certain kind of conversation about what meaningful culture is as being like really vital part of like maybe moving the ball forward or avoiding some of the pitfalls that are going to emerge from that. Mm. That's great. Um, I agree. So I think we're running slightly long, so I'm going to do just a couple more questions. Sorry. Um, <laughs> that's no, it's not. It's just great. Uh, great um, insights that you're but, you know, it's you're giving us. Each one, each one, I suppose we could have a full conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the one that I'm going to kind of move on to next, just because it was, because it was one of the more unexpected chapters, I guess, or for me, I found it like uh, quite surprising, um, sort of alongside all of the others was the one on conspiracy thinking and its kind of relation to the art world, because, um, quite a lot of the cases you cite, I wasn't actually really familiar with, to be honest. So, um, the incident with Marina Abramovich sort of had some sense of it, but I wasn't really sure about all the different kind of a sort of um particularities of that and the sort of wider conspiracies sort of about Pizzagate and those which were kind of subsequently peddled by AQAnon. Um so I was quite interested by your assertion at one point that conspiracy theory kind of serves a kind of aesthetic function in the way that this kind of analytic angle kind of complicates some of the less sophisticated arguments of of you know, people saying that conspiracists are either being naive or they're like victims of being, you know, so chronically online that they they kind of their minds have been sort of more warped in some way. Um, so I thought it might be interesting just now for us to just um, look at uh, touch on what you mean by sort of the aesthetic element of of conspiracy thinking and maybe its implications for kind of how leftist movements should sort of approach the problem. Well. I think, um, yeah, conspiracy theory is a broad term um, that is in some way reductive, that I, but I indulge in the use of the term. Um, that, uh, and I, you know, I try and we have like a multi-factor. It's not a reductive, I, mean, I think there are multiple things going on. There are multiple things that fall under that heading of conspiracy theory, there are multiple push and pull factors towards these things. Um, I think some of the push and pull people will just be familiar with from any kind of like reasonably um, sophisticated discussion of some of these developments. Um, but uh, in terms of the aesthetic dimension, I, I mean, one sub theme of the book, like I said, in the artificial intelligence we're talking about artificial intelligence now is like, how does a certain conversation with art help analyze the world? Like I, I do want to kind of make, I guess I kind of a case for a, a sort of art critical thinking as, as, as um, useful, uh, you know, not, not, not too useful, but as, as a useful tool for engaging with some larger conversations. So conspiracy theory as an aesthetic, as, as, as the aesthetic dimension of conspiracy theory you know, might just fall a more intuitive way to say it might just fall under the, the countercultural aspect of it that I think to a certain extent um, uh, 
you know, there are aspects of some of the, some of this rise in, you know, not just things like QAnon, but there's a renaissance in people believing that the earth is flat, for instance, uh, uh, that is partly, you know, fomented in, in, in chat rooms and, you know, the internet has a, a tremendous ability to take really niche conversations and create really re- giant conversation, you know, magnify them in, in interesting ways. But, but I think you have, and I, I think that art is sort of unable these days to, because it's so attached to a certain form of center left politics, which is about right thinking and, 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 signaling the, the the right kind of progressive beliefs. Um, it's a little bit unable to do something that I think should be intuitive to the people who are interested in art and culture, which is just understand weird stuff, you know, like that to me is the most interesting thing about art is that it is a, in art history. It's just looking at a ton of different symbolic systems that come from other cultures or contexts that you're not familiar with and making sense of how they have, how they animate people's life worlds. Like, that kind of thinking should be useful to understand um, uh, the work that conspiracy theories of, sort of fantastic varieties do for people. But I, in practice, I find that the art world is more just of the kind of like, look at these yokels kind of variety of, um, of thinking about this, about this stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think the conspiracy theory serves a real countercultural purpose for people. And I don't think, there's a way to talk, think about it in terms of its present context is that it, I think part of it grows out of the, out of the reaction to ultra commodified culture. I mean, that, that I think people say it all the time that, you know, our, we, you know, our, our cultural life is so commodified and alienated, but that's intensified over time. And one of the effects of that intensification is people have less and less meaningful signifiers holding together any real sense of community like everything as soon as it a uh, uh, authentic, authentic feeling culture appears um it's immediately strip mined by marketers and turned into products i mean that happens in really uh really fast now uh so one of the effects that that has over time is to push people if you want to code meaningful rebellion to push people to wider wilder and wilder terrain just to find like something that feels authentic that feels like theirs that could mark out some kind of meaningful sense of rebellion or alienation from society and yeah in the conspiracy theory space some of sometimes that starts out as provocation you know sometimes there's an entire history that i briefly go into in the book of things that start out as attempts to parody conspiracy theory or like critique conspiracy theory by like taking things to their logical conclusion um, to to sort of hold the idea of like master conspiracies themselves up to ridicule. But then that takes on its whole life as like authentically felt belief. And that's predictable. That's a predictable effect. If you view part of their, their role as part of this sense of, of marking cultural space, giving uh, of, of, of that they, they, that they at once they fulfilled two, two, um, two roles at once. One is like a sincerely held belief system, an explanation for some of the alienations and uh, and, uh, and and dislocations of the world, 
And another is a way to c connect you to another community through, through symbols. And, uh, you know, anyone who's been a teenager trying to rebel will know that the value of having some kind of culture that makes your parents mad. I mean, that's the most elementary, that's the most elementary way of marking your terrain is, is listening to the music that your parents hate. And as, you know, time goes on, culture has become more, um, more and more, uh, commodified I think that pushes pushes people into the the to, to more and more outrageous kinds of subcultures mm. great so I'm, I'm just gonna go into one more question now just to just to round it off um don't want to get too bleak but this you know this, this seems to be the trajectory that we're going down <laughs> um so I guess like my last question we're just going to focus on um kind of the most urgent and sort of pressing sort of moment um Thing that we're kind of thinking about at the moment um so that's the role of art and kind of thinking about the climate emergency which you kind of address at the end of the book um and thinking about sort of the extent to which you can kind of foment, foment alternative ways of thinking about kind of our relation to the planet and to, to non-human life so i mean quite rightly sort of in the book you're careful not to kind of overstate the extent to which art can kind of change people's minds and sort of mobilize action about climate change um but so this question's quite broad, really. Take it where you will. Um, I'm just kind of wondering what kind of role you see art and cultural production sort of playing in sort of the, as, as, the, as the climate crisis intensifies and kind of what forms it might take, really. Yeah, well, um, I think the, the last five years, you know, the recent period has really been like when the most alarming um, projections about climate change have come out. And I think that's been a really another factor in the, you know, hypercharging the pressures on, on art to deliver some kind of redemption narrative, um, that kind of uh, changing structure feeling that we talked about at the beginning is connected to, to that sort of sense of dread that now saturates everything. Um, and there's an awful lot of recent art with trees in it. I mean, it's really like a huge, uh, genre at this point of artists, uh, imagining what it's like to be moss or, uh, uh, planting, uh, trees, uh, or, um, you know, that is just a major, like one of the major themes of, of, of recent art. There's a lot of pressure on art to deliver as, as usual, I mean, my kind of intervention is trying to connect with some of those energies, but also kind of uh, place the cultural conversation in relationship to, to, to wider struggle, you know, the, wide, the need for wider organized struggles. So in the, this chapter that you're talking about, I go into the history of, of um, art as a uh, Utopian thinking, if you want to call it that, like thinking, envisioning a different future, um, that used to be a pretty big um, resource for the left. Um, its ability to like promise a picture of a big future, not just you know incrementally change present, but you know here's a better world we're tending towards. Here's a here's a, here's an idea of it that's really animating, mobilizing for people. Um, I think there actually is a little bit of a renaissance of speculative. Uh, art, like trying to, 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 to interface with that kind of energy. 
what really struck me in the in thinking about some of this is how um, on a mainstream level of culture, dystopia is really the default the default speed. I mean, that is it's 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 it's, it's just sort of expected. If there's a picture of of the future in any kind of mainstream science fiction, um, the picture of the future is is just by default dystopian. Either a techno dystopian of sort of like some kind of techno fascism or or dictatorship, or it's a climate dystopia, some kind of you know uh, Mad Max style uh, 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 post apocalyptic world. And in terms of utopian thinking, that exists, but it mainly exists in Silicon Valley. You know, there's there's plenty of people promising you that you know. NFTs will end the problem of the starving artist and usher in a, a new decentralized internet that will end poverty. And I've he heard people actually say those things. So the chapter is about um, is about thinking through what the conditions are for a form of critical utopian culture to to play a productive role. Because I, I think it can. I mean, I think this is one of the places where where art could really, um, really be really useful. Like the, the, the resources of artists could be really useful to the project of organizing people. Like you can't just organize people around a bleak vision of the near future. Um, I think that people tune out pretty fast if, if, if there's, if, if all you can promise is maybe avoiding the worst. I, I just think, and there's this sort of liberal genre of climate commentary that just repeats worst case scenarios and says, why aren't people doing anything? And part of the answer is because that kind of commentary has already foreclosed all the options that you'd need in order to, to have a credible, like if you rule out, you know, forms of economic distribution that would make it possible for, for to get people on board with the project of, a, a climate transition, then, then there's no credible thing being offered here. There's just a negative projection and people can and have tuned out, um, uh, uh, writing about the, about the environment because there's just no credible, better future on offer. And I, I and there's a, you know, a lot of socialist writing about, you know, what, what kind of credible things we can write we could talk about, but I guess the intervention of the book is that it can't, there's a distinction in theory between, um, you know, abstract and real utopias and, uh, Ernst Bloch, one of the things, Marxist thinker of utopianism, one of the things he talks about is like the utopian imagination is not some, uh, province, some, some special thing that, uh, Marxists or radicals have it's it's just it's part of people's everyday life is like speculating on a better future I mean anytime someone buys a lottery ticket they know it's probably not going to pay off but you get to fantasize about about well what if you know what if my life was completely changed for the better their whole industry's built off that most fiction you know when people live happily ever after that's a form of utopianism you know this idea of an achieved equilibrate state of happiness. Um, so, so it's not enough to just like offer somebody, uh, 
a good picture of the future. The criteria of, uh, of, of some sort of constructive artistic intervention in this space is, you know, real movements and organizations that look like they can bridge the gap to that, you know, and um, some conversation with the, you know, the, the real, the real tendencies that are going on in society. And, and, and so I just kind of circles back around that I, I think that I, I have, I think this is a real place where we can engage that artists can be part of, of this really vital kind of like maybe the most vital human conversation right now in a really positive way. But um, there is also an entire industry at this point of green art and sort of nonprofit version of this that, that take creative energies and channel them into sort of like boutique forms of, of awareness raising or, um, you know, uh, yeah, community gardening, things like this, all of which are fine on their own, but, 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 but take the conversation towards the symbolic and the, the thing that will make a, a, a form of, of, of authentically left visioning of the future meaningful is if there is an authentic left, you know, if there is, there's an organized left that has like, is able to wield some sort of power to affect the conversation in some way. So, you know, it sort of ends up, you know, the place you end is the place you start. It's like, you can't resolve these things. You know, culture can play a part. I have great hope for it. It can't play a part on its own. It needs to be positioned in relationship to, um, to, 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 to problems that can't be resolved on its own terrain. Uh, and, and, uh, that's where we are. That's, 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 that's the, the problem that falls to us. Um, but you know, people are organizing, people are debating, uh, there's, there's stuff to be involved with. Um, and I just think that there's, there's, you know, if you're an artist looking for a way to, to have hope, be meaningful, involved in things, I, I just start with getting involved with, with those forces, start with getting involved with those actual debates. And then the questions about the artistic production flow from that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's like kind of like the perfect sort of ending um question and the sort of your message there uh is a really sort of good way to wrap up. So just before we um log off, do you um have any kind of interesting projects on the horizon that you'd like to tell our audience about? Not really. I mean, I now this book was exhausting to write. It's been an exhausting few years and you know, I, I my my project now is to practice what I preach and 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 uh, be involved with with my socialist community here in New York and the debates affecting it. I mean that's that's where I'm at. Um, I think that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, and uh, and I mean I'm promoting the book. I, I really it's sort of it's sort of it's been a depressing few years, honestly. Um, uh, and. I, I, art's silly, you know, in the end, a lot of these problems are really small. Um, and, uh, on the nights when I've been laying in bed, you know, kind of depressed and, and thinking about what it all means and feeling, you know, myself really alienated and isolated, uh, during the pandemic, uh, you know, I have some hope that the book does a little bit of good, you know, that, 
that you know I hope that the, that it can contribute to some conversations that maybe at a at a local level you know it's part of a little wheel that might turn a slightly bigger wheel that might be part of the collective project of 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 moving things forward. So I care about promoting the book, but mainly it's just uh, it's just it's all about the very uh, unglamorous, romantic, mainly offline work of just having out conversation of, of how to move politics forward yeah well it sounds sounds great it's the important work that you're doing there so ben thank you so much for talking with me it's been a really great conversation you've given some sort of great insights into your book yeah, thank you Lisa. i really enjoyed talking to you 